Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, it's three years after the police murder of George Flood, Floyd excuse me, prompted a nationwide reckoning over policing. Where are we in Connecticut? Where are we as a country three years later? We have two people who are better positioned to tell us than anybody else I can think in the whole city, the whole state. State Senator Gary Winfield of New Haven and Dr. Lorenzo Boyd, the Stewart Professor in Criminal Justice and Community Policing at University of New Haven, a retired law enforcement officer himself. They're going to help us break that down. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you so much for coming to WNHH. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Okay, I want to make sure I got Lorenzo's mic okay. Uh, yeah, you want to get close there so we can really hear you. All right. <laughs> well, so where are we three years later nationally? Why don't we start with you, Dr. Boyd? Are we in a different place from where we were when it was just one of several cases, but this one lit the, lit the fuse for the whole country when George Floyd couldn't breathe and was uh, murdered in Minneapolis? Well, the short answer is yes and no. Uh, the yes is we start to see a lot of uh, reform happening in different departments. So there are little enclaves throughout the department where we see really good things happening. We see police accountability bills, much like the one we have here. Different states are starting to do that. The no part is we really need national reform. We need national standards, but we haven't even begun to scratch the surface with our national reform. And when you say that like, you're involved in a lot of national organizations, are you talking about civic organizations, police organizations, or are you talking about Congress because Congress ain't happening? We, they, Tim Scott tried to do a bipartisan <laughs> bill. didn't happen. What kind of change do you think needs to happen and where can it happen from? I think it needs to be a governmental change and I think it needs to be legislative reform. We need to have national standards for policing because the things that they do in Tulsa would be very different than Boston. The things in New Haven would be very different than Birmingham. And we need to have uh, standards so that everyone in policing understands this is your job. And we're trying to move away from law enforcement, which is 90% reactive, to more policing, which is more service-oriented. And that's the thing that's going to build bridges with the community. So in Minneapolis, there was a, a move to defund the police when there were demonstrations and some riots after George Floyd. And then the city council majority had supported defunding, quickly did not. A mayor was reelected not for defunding. And now, three years later, the U.S. Justice Department has come in with a report showing endemic racism in that department and violence and now there's going to be a consent decree is consent decree one of the main avenues of how we reform policing in america it is in minneapolis the three scariest words for policing were uttered patterns and practices it's not just what officers are doing individually on the street this is talking about what the department is doing department-wide it is so egregious that the Department of Justice said we need to come in and not only oversee because they have an overseer now with their department, but they also now have a consent decree. We are going to come up with policy and make sure you follow these policies because we can't trust you to police yourselves. So that's that's a huge step, I think, in the right direction. It's unfortunate that we had to go there, but we all saw what was going on. So it was needed. Dr. Uh Boyd was not in New Haven yet, Gary, when you and I watched East Haven come under one of those consent decrees that Justice Department came down and their lives were threatened by the police chief in East Haven saying, I can't protect your safety if you ride around with other officers. You mean you talk about Birmingham, East Haven, 
they actually would be caught on camera saying, we're going to pretend you have a gun. And they used to beat people up and, uh, you know, pretty awfully murdered one man. And how's that worked out, Harry? The cons- I mean, Gary, the consent decree, what do you think? Uh, well, you know, I think those of us who've been around long enough uh, still have memories of uh, an oldie statement, but it's certainly not uh, what it was. I think, you know, to the question you were asking, uh, Dr. Boyd, the, the the issue of consent decrees largely has been how we've dealt with. Were uh, there any during the Trump administration or was there a four-year pause and a going back? I'm trying to remember. I thought they were not in favor of those consent decrees. That was an Obama con- and Biden. Most of the consent decrees during the administration of number 45 were actually rolled back. Mm-hmm. So we took a step backwards under that administration, I think. But now we've kind of brought them back. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you had a president, right? We had a president who believed that, you know, when you put the suspect in the car, you bumped their head. So clearly, yeah. <laughs> clearly that was a direction they wanted to go in. Um, I was just going to make the point that that had been largely how we were doing things. But as you suggest, Paul, the, the conversation has shifted to what can we do in law to, to make this standards uh, exist to make um, to make the way that the relationships between the police and communities um, exist a different thing to make it more standardized and to make people uh, who've experienced the wrong end of policing feel safe. And I think that's an important conversation uh, that we've begun here in Connecticut uh, and that nationally we certainly need to have much, much more of. Well, Gary, I remember because I covered your campaigns when you ran first in 2008 for state representative. Now you're state senator. Changing that relationship and having better rules for policing was at the center of your campaign. It was activism you had done before that. And you for before in the, uh, I guess, the uh, 12 years before George Floyd when you were in legislature, you went piece by piece, step by step. Mm-hmm. You got rules about profiling, documenting racial profiling. You, you got rid of the death penalty. I yep. mean, that was kind of a big lift. That took a bunch of years. But then when George Floyd happened, the protest, you seized the moment to introduce legislation. And if I, if I have it right, that the main thing you were going after at that year was qualified immunity that if police officers kill someone act really outrageously outside the rules they're not protected they can be sued individually is that was that what so that was the main conversation i'm not sure that was the main thing we were going after so let me take us let me let me take us back slightly so you are correct that after um the killing of george floyd uh, i recognize that there was a moment and i about five minutes when the whole country was saying we'd rather police, right. you know, and that was like across parties and race for until no, Fox got it right. back. To me, what happened was I got a call from a reporter and the reporter asked me, uh, how does this impact Connecticut? And this was, I think, a day after it happened. Uh, and I recognized in that moment that if I spoke and said certain things, you might be able to set, set certain things in, in action. So I said, well, Connecticut is not much different than anywhere else. Uh Ferguson wasn't Ferguson until it became Ferguson and all of these places are not what we now understand them to be until they become that. And I think it's a moment for us to uh, move forward with uh, police accountability. Uh, What people don't recognize because they see the 2020 bill, they don't recognize as you suggested that we were going piece by piece until 2015, actually in 2015, that's when I did the first multi-section bill that was followed up by a bill in 2019 after the incident with the Yale police uh, and uh, the Hamden police in New Haven, which was also multi-section. And then uh, there was supposed to be a break, right? Normally there's a break between these things because if you don't have a break, there's a lot of pressure and uh, people feel like you're, you're just going back to the well. But with the advent of the incident with George Floyd, it was an opportunity to talk about this. And so, yes. Poli- and Governor uh, Cuomo saw that same opportunity. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was it about 
having public records of police misconduct thing on their files, or was it about um, qualified immunity that he, he got something to do with the legislature there, Governor Cuomo, in those five minutes? I can't remember what So, but you and anyways, you put together a bill. So we put together, yes, there was a bill put together. And one of the things that people don't recognize is that, one, I have 25, 30 years of doing this stuff, but also that uh, police were involved in this, right? So the conversation was about an individual who hates police uh, taking opportunity uh, from this moment to go I was going to get later to how it was portrayed, but what was it that you passed? So we passed a bill that dealt with, yes, the issue of governmental immunity. I won't say qualified immunity because that's a federal concept and we can't change the federal concept of qualified immunity. But what we did was we created a cause of action at the state level, thereby uh, dealing with the issue of governmental immunity at the state. Cops that's on your neck for 19 minutes or whatever or shoot you and there wasn't a basis you could sue the cop. Right. Has anyone been sued since that was passed? I don't believe there was talk of a case, but I don't believe there's been. So this is so what far. got me about that, Gary. So it seems like people outside and maybe you could check in this, Dr. Boyd, when there's an argument that goes on about any kind of incremental steps to police accountability, immediately the police union says we can't do our job now. And some people actually stop doing their job and saying you hate police now that what's the thing. Whereas in the real life on the ground, as a reporter, I've always had the sense that almost nobody will actually sue a cop. And if they do, even if the cop has immunity, you almost never win but, because juries and the criminal justice system are so, whether you think it's right or wrong, they're given to give the cop a break because of how their job is done and all that. So it would have to be so egregious. Like it's been three years since Gary passed that bill. Nobody's been sued, and yet they claim this stops people from doing their job, and there's such a backlash to it. What's that about? Am I wrong about how that works on the ground? Well, let me let me just take a step back. The the whole argument that police are less likely to do their job, there was a theory that was debunked called the Ferguson effect that said, you know, when you hold police accountable, then the police are less likely to do their job. And I just, uh, I'm in the process of uh, finishing a, uh, a policing textbook with uh, Cengage, you know, uh, it's policing past, present, and future. And I introduced the term blue fragility. And we're all familiar with the term white fragility, where white people who don't typically talk about issues of race, when we bring up race, it makes them feel really uncomfortable. The blue fragility part is the police are not used to being held accountable for things because the police tend to get a pass because the rhetoric will come out it's the police that separates us from anarchy as though there's nothing in the middle. And all of a sudden we're now starting to hold rogue officers accountable. And then they're saying, well, if that could happen to them, that could happen to me. And a lot of people are, are kind of in their feelings about it when the truth is the vast majority of police officers do a great job every day and they, you know, inter interact with the community really well. So they have nothing to worry about. How many about. years were you in law enforcement? Uh, 14 and a half. Sheriff? Yes. And so how did you feel about that? If, did you ever feel like people are too hard on the cops? They don't understand what you go through. The, the only time I got any heartburn at all was when the Rodney King beating happened. And I was in Boston. I remember driving and waving. And then someone like gave me the finger. And I turned around. And I was like, what is that about? And they said, we saw what you guys did to Rodney King. And here I was in Boston, 3,000 miles away. That's when I started to understand the global nature of policing. So that was the only time the I saw that. I, I said, that wasn't me. You know me. I've been in this community because when I take off my uniform, I'm in the same community. I live in the same area. I shop at the same stores that I pass when I'm in uniform. So to me, there wasn't a difference. I was part of the community. 
a lot of times there are officers that aren't part of the community and may retreat back to where they well, are. Well, do you think part of what happened to Gary and the others is the reaction against the defund the police movement? So it started out as a conversation of long-term, do we want to move to not needing police? There are better ways to dealing with problems if we invest in mental health, crisis response. And then the country was convinced that everybody wanted to get rid of police departments. So that even in New Haven, I would say in liberal neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color, people said, we don't want to get rid of the cops, we just want them to do their job better. Mm-hmm. Did that get in the way of efforts like yours, Gary, to have an intelligent conversation and try to hold rogue cops responsible? Sure. Uh, the conversation about defunding the police, uh, I think, is a smokescreen. But yes, it, it did It did come into play in, in not only the uh, 2020 bill, uh, but before we had really coined the term, it came into play in the, the 2015 and 2019 bills. But mm. what's interesting about that conversation to me is over the years, as I've done the pieces of what became the, the, the scheme of police accountability in Connecticut, the police would often come and oppose what we were doing. And one of the things that they would say is, you guys have us out here doing all of this stuff we shouldn't be doing. You have us operating as social workers. You have us operating as one thing or the other. You should take that away and let us do our job, which is essentially what we're talking about. That's what we- always amazed me about this thing. Because when, when community policing started in New Haven in the early 90s, what I heard from so many conventional cops was, we can't be social workers. We're not right. social workers. Why are you dumping that in our lap? And I'm actually very sympathetic to police officers sure. about the kind of stuff they deal with they're not trained for and that we haven't solved as a society like homelessness and mental health. But then when the proposal was to spend on that, as Gary said, people said, oh, you're taking away our money. It's how it's framed. I think that's the problem. Saying the words defund the police is problematic even to me. What we're talking about is resource reallocation. It's the same song and dance every police chief and every mayor or every city manager has every single year. We have a finite amount of money coming from the state or coming from um, taxpayers. How do we allocate this money? And what a lot of people in the community are saying, traditional policing, the way we're currently doing, doing it, can be improved. Can we reallocate some of this money that we use to fight, you know, fight crime. Well, in New Haven, to... we have a very modest crisis response team. It took a few years. They seem to be doing a good job. Mental health people go out and work with people in crisis. The goal is one day have 10% of the 120,000 911 calls dealt with. So it's not going to take a big piece out of it, but the right. idea is that this can stop those terrible interactions. Gary, do you think they're making a difference? Is this the right way to go? Is this what you had in mind? The concept is uh, more of what we had in mind. I, I haven't had the ability to assess how well they're doing, so I won't speak to that. But it's certainly in line with with the thinking, right? Look, look we don't want uh, police to show up to to circumstances where the skills that they have, uh, the tools they have, do not apply. So it's the very reason why, and I don't really want to go down this path too far. The very reason why I have the the perspective I have on school resource officers, right? I think when we talk about police being in a setting, they should be appropriate for that setting. And there are places where they're appropriate. There are places where they're not. And I agree with the police who came and asked us to reallocate resources that we should be doing that. And then you did it, and you called the cop hater. And yeah. now every time we write about a crime, in, just to be honest here, every time there's an independent a crime that you really wish hadn't happened, and you really wish the person be arrested for shooting somebody to death, they'll say, Senator Winfield <laughs> got what he wanted by having a police accountability bill. How does that feel, Gary? I mean, we're laughing now, but how does that feel? To be honest, I'm, I'm almost at this point. It happens as you suggest almost every time. I'm almost. It's pretty immune. automatic. I think there's an automatic key yeah. like Alt W <laughs> that they all press. I, I feel like I'm almost immune to it. I get it. I get why people have that perspective, um, but it has not deterred me from doing what I know to be the right thing. And I would remind people, 
all of the police accountability that I've done has had police involved in it in, in the crafting of it. So it's not, and, and I have a long history. So this is not done by. You were in the military, right? You in the I was Navy. in the military. Um, you know, I've been an activist since I was 18, talking about issues of policing, involved with police in one way or the other. This is not somebody who woke up and said, I hate the police and has the ability because I'm in the legislature to do legislation. This is someone who is engaged with police, who has a long, 30 plus years, who has a long history of being involved in this and wants to make this relationship between the police and communities, particularly the black community, a better relationship. And we're talking about three years of the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protest and the continuing uh, slaughter in our street by people with guns, um, AR-15s, and, and, and we're talking about that. Where are we now three years later? State Center Gary Winfield and Dr. Renzo Boyd, the Stewart Professor in Criminal Justice and Community Placing, and University of New Haven. So we just finished the state legislative session, Gary. As usual, you're you're quoted often because you're now the chair of the Senate chair of the Judiciary mm-hmm. Committee. All these bills come before you and get molded with you and by you about how we're going to police in our state. How did it go this session? What did you win? What did you not win? What got done? What didn't get done? So largely, we didn't deal with police. Uh, as you know, one of the big bills this session was the governor's uh, gun bill, uh, which started off as a... a a humongous bill and got pared back as bills tend to. Uh, one of the big issues there was about what they um, were terming uh, serious firearm offenders. And you may you fill you with this, Dr. Boyd, when you talk about the, the small number of people who commit the most, and you're often involved in studies like this that look mm-hmm. at who's committing the crime and, who, and how best to deal with that small number. Mm-hmm. And you may remember that the conversation uh, when the mayors came before my committee turned into this whole conversation about me wanting to uh, let these serious firearm offenders uh, be out in the community and shoot folks because I had opposition to the proposal that had come before us. What had happened was uh, we had a proposal that would um, that ostensibly was to get people who were the shooters, but would take any young person on the street who happened to have a gun, which is illegal, and there are already uh, penalties under the law for that, would take any of them and apply these uh, provisions to them. And so my issue was if we're saying that we want to want to get those who are uh, serious firearm offenders, we should craft it that way. And let's uh, just tell people what it was. Do I have it right that the proposal before you, Gary, was to say if someone's already been involved in serious firearm offenses and then they're arrested again, we're not going to make it as easy for them to be out on bond. And if they are convicted, we're not going to make it as easy for them when they've had a couple of these to get early release. Am I right? And there's gonna be a special docket for prosecuting those crimes. That, that is, that is, that sounds more like what we wound up with than what we actually had at first. And I think, uh, their reading of what they had at first was what you, what you say. Um, and you were saying it's not gonna work out as expected because they're the kind of people who might've been with a bunch of people and had a gun and we call it a serious offense, but they never actually right. shot anybody, that kind of thing. Right. So what happened in the end? Did you get that compromise? So I rewrote it. Uh, <laughs> that's what, <laughs> and what, how does it work now? Uh, so it works that you have to have had uh, the prior uh, conviction uh, and the types of things that you would be convicted for uh, would be some serious things. You'd have to have uh, a murder, an assault, uh, certain uh, serious offenses that you've already. Um, and what uh, happens if you have that and then you're arrested with it? Then that's when all of the provisions. Right. So if you have uh, the prosecutor can uh, make the application that you get a 30 percent up to 30 percent uh, bail. Uh, they can revoke uh your 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 uh bell they can do all of the things that they wanted to do originally but it actually now applies to the right set of people who are actually doing damage in our community so i want to ask dr boyd and senator winfield whether again i'm out to lunch on this because you deal with this remember how we just talked about 
with community crisis response and mental health that there should have been a grand bargain because the most conservative police say we're not social workers. The people who said move some resources away, we say you're not social workers. But then when it came time to not make them social workers, they couldn't agree. I'm wondering about this on the bond issue. So on the one side, they say too many people are getting out of prison who just committed a serious offense because they're able to make bond or they're getting a release because of COVID and they're committing more crimes and we don't want the most violent people to do that. People on the other side, I'll say people like us in this room, we say so many people get jammed up for life and kept behind bars when they haven't been convicted of a crime or if they get a second chance that's better for society that they don't just keep them locked up but that we have over-incarceration. And that everyone seems to agree that what we're concerned about is a very small number of people who are out shooting people. And then, so I don't understand why the grand bargain can't be to have no bond. Why do we need bond? Bond just jams up people who are poor, and it's done based on the ability, if you're poor or if you're involved. I did one case where the guy was involved with a really heavy-duty gang. So he shot somebody, he had this really high bond, and he got out even though he was a danger, and he fled. But you got all these other people who the only reason they're behind bars is because they're poor and they get in more trouble. Why couldn't everyone just agree that there's a very small number of people who pose a threat, you convince they pose a threat, have nothing to do with money, don't have a whole industry of bail bondsmen, keep them behind bars, and everybody else you don't lock them up pre-trial, and you don't have a whole business, and you don't have criminal justice based on income. Why isn't that great? Why am I, why am I so out to lunch and thinking that can't just happen? I don't think you're you out. You make the law. You have to know. And where you study this, I am obviously out the lunch because it's not happening. It seems to me when I listen to the debate, everybody kind of agrees while they're yelling at each other. You even agree that you felt that you were okay with a bill that had a very small number of people who weren't going to be put back on the street. As long as it was the small number of people. If right. It was the right people. Yeah, as long as it's the right people, which has always been my position. I don't think you're out to lunch. I think there are a lot of people with different interests involved here, right? And in, in, in the space where I am, where you have... Uh, Democrats and Republicans, and then you have a spectrum of Democrats, they have to go back and explain why they've done what they've done to the people they represent. And that is often a difficult thing. So part to of do. it is the way people hot dog crime. Sure. So you say like, just if there's a bad crime, but everyone's scared, you could say Gary Winfield wants the people out of prison. But isn't it, were you also talking about the bail bond industry? Because it doesn't serve, does it serve Dr. Boyd any purpose for society to have a bail bond industry? Well, yeah. People would argue that it does, but unfortunately, it it turns our jails and prisons kind of into debtors' prisons that many people are in because they can't afford to get out, as opposed to their level of seriousness. And the people we don't want to get out are the ones who do get out. Either they're rich and they're dangerous, or they're with the Bloods. I mean, I had one guy recently who was with the Bloods. He got out, and then he skipped town. He just shot someone. Because the bond was so high that you're dangerous instead of higher bond. That just means you're really dangerous because you're in a gang, so they got access to money. But who, but who can have this conversation? So I can't have this. So given my history and the things I've worked on, as soon as I start speaking, it's because he's soft on crime and he wants to let everybody out, right? That's not true, but it doesn't matter whether But you do come from a district where people do listen to you. You've gotten reelected pretty handily now. I don't think you've sure. had a serious challenge in 20 in, 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 uh, in, uh Forever. 15 yeah. years, yeah. But but that's my district. But I but we don't function at the state you capital. Wanna, you want to succeed. You want to, at the capital be able to pass laws. You have to pass it, right. So that's the issue. So when so when we are in the, the capital, the conversation is about what about the victims? And and I don't know if you saw this, but there was a, uh, a debate where the Republicans were going on and on about the victims. And I got fed up with it, quite frankly. And I was like, you don't listen to victims. I, I mean, I've been a victim of, I think it's 14 crimes in my life. 
Including uh, you had the cargo on your lawn, you had the bullet on your, bu- on your can, ports, can, and this is all in the last two years, right? right? I can just name, right? I can just yeah. keep naming crimes. Uh, and and my point to them is, you know, you, you talk about representing the victims, but you listen to a certain type of victim. When you listen to the victims in my community, they are on both sides of this equation, and they are more likely to understand why a person like myself is doing what I'm doing than the victims that, that they're talking about who expect to never be a victim of a crime. When I was a kid, I would wake up sometimes in the morning to go to school and the car wasn't there. And you know what we said? Man, the car is gone. We kept we kept on rocking because it was relatively normal. I slept with a knife under my mattress because people would break into my apartment and do whatever they were going to do. So it, it's not right, but I had a different set of expectations. And so they don't represent those people who might actually have people who they know or people who they're in their family who might we don't have been, humanize. Right. Dr. Boyd is involved in a really interesting study right now. I'm wondering if that gets to humanization. So you and Carl Mingus at UNH just got a million dollars from the federal government to analyze how to break the cycle of gun-related violence. And one thing you're going to do is you're going to train 200 law officers in interviewing people who have experienced trauma and building up relationships with local communities. How is this tied to guns, and how are you going to carry this out? Well, there's there's a a lot of things that are going on. One is we need to increase the trauma-informed policing. And there's a lot of crimes that happen. Uh, there was a, a big crime that I, uh, that I read about in the book, The Other Side of Prospect, when Mr. Field was shot and killed. There were seven people that physically saw that, but when the police came out to interview, everyone had amnesia. Part of the problem is we need to train police to understand the trauma that community members are going to so they can know how to approach them. So if you go on a call and somebody's a victim of sexual assault, you're not going to walk up and put your hand on them because you understand their trauma. The more we can get the police to understand community trauma, the better that they will deal with them. And do you think that would get people, because part of what happened in that book was there were fear about snitching. Fear, one, they didn't trust the cops because they knew the cops set, set people up as they did in this case with Bobby That's Johnson. the big part of it. The, the snitching part, not so much. It's the, I don't trust the police. And at the time, back then, New Haven's got a different police department now than it had 25 years ago. And I think the no snitching, although it's still there, if we can build relationship with communities. Do you think they're doing it? Because one thing, one pre- readers, some readers have been pushing back at me because they say, well, they're making these homicide arrests, and sometimes which we weren't making before. And sometimes it just means, like, some departments, they're just, and like we used to, we're just setting people up. You don't have really good evidence. You're just saying, I cleared it, and you frame them. Other times it could mean they're starting to trust you and giving you good information, or you're doing the hard work to also back it up by, by um, getting physical evidence of which technology has helped make that happen. What's, what's happening in New Haven now? Why are we solving more homicide? I think part of it is also relationship. And it, has that you know, improved? It, oh, absolutely. I think Tell me about the, that. the new guard that came in, and this is not a slight on any of the other chiefs. I've been here five years, and I've had four chiefs. But the one thing I can say is there are certain officers in the community, when I go to community meetings, that I keep hearing their names. People talk about Chief Jacobson all the time. Lots of folks in the community love him. They talk about Assistant Chief uh, Mamet Cologne. They talk about uh, Lieutenant Fumiati. They talk about Sergeant Saunders. So there are people that are part of the community that people are starting to trust. We actually had the Proud Boys run in the department before that. But, okay, that's it. <laughs> but, but so do you, okay. do, you, do you see the same change, Gary? Or do uh, you think it's, are you waiting to see the proof in the pudding, whether these cases actually lead to conviction? I think, you know, I think that's an interesting question. I think it's harder for me these days to know the answer to that than it used to be. Um, I have a closer relationship with them, despite <laughs> despite what people might think, uh, than, than I used to have when I was on the outside as an activist. I, I do think that Jacobson and some of the, the folks mentioned 
uh, have a better reputation amongst the Because you had this really helpful skepticism, Gary, when people are talking about community policing, and there were definitely some good cops, but mm -hmm. just because they walked the beat, you said, I'm in New Hallville. We don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. They don't stop and talk to us. You didn't believe it was true. Your neighbors didn't feel like they could talk to them. No. Has that changed? Um, it depends. I think it depends on which officer is there. I think that's the real answer. I, I will also say that, you know, all of this is dealing with symptoms, right? The whole conversation is dealing with symptoms. And part of the problem we have is that we're always going to have to find a better way of policing mm -hmm. as opposed to dealing with why are, why do we have these crimes? And until we deal with that, we're going to be sitting here having this conversation. And if it's 2024, we might say, hey, the police are doing great. If it's 2025, they might not be. And I, I think that's the reality here. And what about gun crimes? Uh, so we dealt with that decision. Your, your bill also had to do with it was really going around the edges. It was nice things to do, you know, about like make some of the loopholes so certain AR-15s that you could get away with. Grandfather, you can't anymore. Certain kinds of guns, ghost guns aren't loophole. But are we really not that we'd be against gun control? Is that really what's going to stop? You know, the, the right says it's all mental health. So you're crazy if you shoot the guns. So we want to make sure the crazy people don't have them, not the people who protect the other side says there are these crazy gun laws that like who needs an AR-15 that could shoot 30 deadly bullets in five seconds in, in a school. You don't need that. Other people say we have such a gun sick culture compared to other countries that no matter what the laws are, people are just going to keep shooting up everything. From studying this issue and you now have the study and from passing legislation, Gary, what, what have you concluded about the real route to stopping gun violence? When we talk about legal guns versus illegal guns, the vast majority, the vast majority of mass shootings that happen are actually guns that are legally purchased and legally in homes. So one, if there are guns in the home, then we need to find a much, much, much better way to secure the guns. We also have to have real uniform background checks. Ultimately, the problem is we've got a gun culture that I think is toxic and fatalistic. Unless we deal with that, the tragedy that happened in Sandy Hook, in my classroom, I said, now we're finally going to get common sense gun laws because these little kids were shot and killed in school. We kind of all thought that for five minutes. And then it happened again. And they did get some kind of legislation after Uvalde, right? You, you actually had Cornyn and Cinema and Murphy pass something. But again, this gets back to my original question. I mean, your point's well taken that even getting little common sense law takes 10 years and some kind of crazy tragedy right. until people forget it. What's going to do it in the bigger way? I don't know that we can. I don't know that this country is equipped to do that because it's, it's pretty obvious that guns are more important than kids. I mean, I, until we change that, I don't know that we can do anything. So, Gary, so, how does that motivate you when you're up there trying to push for gun legislation? So first, I, I want to make sure that gun legislation actually makes sense. And there's some stuff that we that even Democrats have put forward that I don't believe actually makes that much sense. But but to the question of, uh, well, let me start off with I actually did not believe that we were going to pass common sense gun uh, gun laws after uh, Sandy Hook, and and I actually uh, went to the legislature when they had the commission. Uh, it said that it said we are definitely not focusing on what's happening on a regular basis, the banal mass shooting that's going on over a period of time in, in our urban communities. And I was roundly ignored because that wasn't where we wanted to focus. But I think that we have a problem that goes back to uh, the beginning of the Second Amendment issue. Right. And, and you have a you have a Supreme Court that has been crafted in such a way uh, that they engineered to have an individual right that never existed. Right. right. The right is that you can have a militia that's funded. That doesn't mean 
you can walk around with an AR-15 that can mow down a bunch of kids. But it was also funded. It was also there for a reason, right? And that militia was there because the states, Virginia and, and Patrick Henry, for example, were concerned about the fact that the national militia, which was the original construct, the national militia might be busy with something else and they wouldn't be able to put down a slave revolt. Right. Uh-huh. So this this is why we have a Second Amendment. It's a and that's about a militia, right? It's not about individuals. It is about a militia. It wasn't an individual right. Now, we know that. But when you get to uh, the, the more recent cases, when you when you get to the more recent cases, the Supreme Court says you have an individual right. Therefore, codifying this 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 misinterpretation of the Second Amendment. And I don't know how you undo this. Right. So the question of how do we get there? I don't know. I think. States are the laboratory of invention in this country, really. It's not the federal government. I think you have to have states uh, where you have leadership pushing for the type of gun uh, reform. And what would you like to see? Are you happy with what we got? Do you agree with Lorenzo that the culture is so sick that while you want to do this, it's not going to make the big difference that's needed? Like, what do you think when you walk in that building and you're doing this? Well, I mean, we're in Connecticut, right? So we've done, we've done just about everything you could do. So in, in the state of Connecticut, I, I do think we've made a lot of advancement. There are always going to be people who think you should do more. And I, I don't necessarily disagree with them, but in terms of where we said- So I, my question is well, how, how far can legislation go to, to address the problem or there, what else do we need to do? Well, I mean, I think legislation could go pretty far. Again, if you look at Connecticut, we, we've outlawed uh, certain types of weapons, right? That, that we talk about on the news every evening, right? You, you can't- And has gun crime gone down compared to other states? Well, I mean, that's a that's a loaded question too. Given I think the answer is yes, give, Sandy Hook. Yes, but it's also a loaded question. Given everything is dependent upon time. So when you were in uh, the COVID uh, the COVID nineteen uh, emergency, you had crimes go crimes go up, including gun crime, because of what was People going on. Out, right. Yeah. So so I again, I think looking at a specific period of time without looking at the overall trend, you can get caught up too, which is what my friends on the other side of the aisle were doing during the emergency. You're listening to talking about three years after um, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. Where are we with Policing America? With State Senator Gary Winfield and Dr. Lorenzo Boyd, the Stewart Professor in Criminal Justice and Community Policing at the University of New Haven. So another issue that came up in the legislature has always really interested me. I'd love to hear both your take on it. Is automated cameras to catch people running red lights and and driving maniacally fast. People driving fast. They're bigger cars. We've had. Every year we keep breaking the 30-year the or 35-year record for pedestrian fatality and people's lives lost and crashed in our state. And for years, this bill couldn't pass to have these cameras. And one of the objections was civil rights, saying that they disproportionately affect people in our ACLU, the NAACP continued to fight it to the end. The bill was modified because they pointed to very real examples in other states where to raise money a local government would put those cameras in a certain neighborhood. But it got pretty complicated in New Haven because in New Haven, where you hear often the most demands for this kind of enforcement and speed humps and these cameras are in poor neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color where they feel like they don't get the same traffic enforcement you get in the other neighborhoods and they're scared to cross the street. So we finally did pass it with the changes to try to address some of these concerns. How did you feel about it, Gary? And how do you navigate that whole issue of race, social justice and traffic enforcement? So I've been there long enough to be in opposition to the bill from the start. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I was I was fine with the bill uh, and its current uh, configuration. You voted for it? I, I did vote for the bill. Oh, so uh, you made a change. This is the first time you voted for it? 
I think it's the first opportunity I've had to vote for it. That, I so think what that's changed correct. this year that made you feel differently? So one, let me just say this. Uh, in the beginning, I think that the concerns about privacy uh, and being placed into communities of color, all of that stuff was, was real, and that's why I opposed the bill. Over the years, the proponents have actually listened, which goes a long way. They've actually listened to the concerns that myself, the ACLU, and NAACP have. I recognize that NAACP is never going to move off their position. Um, but and, they did contribute to that solution. They did go to the table and talk about their concerns. Sure, they still oppose the bill. Yeah, right. So, but but and 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 one of the solutions to get the bill passed was to bring them into the conversation even deeper in the future, right? Because there's the three the, years. Three years. You're going to look right. at how it's going and collect right. the data, right? Um, I think what we have to also consider is that the while uh, what we've seen in other places is a disproportionate enforcement. Uh, what we are also seeing here is disproportionate uh, number of folks who are of color who are on the wrong end of those traffic accidents. Uh, I live in uh, I live in the corner of Winchester and Division. Uh, if people you know, drive fast down that hill, there's an accident there constantly, right? And so on your lawn. I mean, I'm so <laughs> glad you didn't get hit, man. <laughs> there's that, right? <laughs> and but but you know one of the reasons why we've had the disproportionate uh, enforcement is because. In urban sections of cities, you tend to have wider streets that don't have the calming, right? And so people can go faster. So one of the solutions to, to this disproportionality is to do the same thing there that you do in other places. And it happens here in, in, in New Haven as well. If you go down uh, Winchester Avenue, which is one of the cross streets, right, you can be – I don't have a speedometer, but I know there are people who are doing 60 to 80 when they pass my house. If anybody steps out there or if a car happens to be there, there's going to be an accident. That's that's a problem. So what about Dr. Boy, you know, more people get killed in Connecticut by a lot by really crazy driver people driving crazily as opposed to guns. How does that show up on your radar and what did you think about this automated enforcement idea? You know, I'm still trying to figure out I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. So I'm trying to do a lot of reading and I, I follow a lot of the stuff that uh, Senator Winfield's doing to try to get a handle on it. But it's just not an area yet that I have any level of expertise that I think I can't even form an opinion yet. Mm -hmm. well, now, me... I, will, I will just remind all of us that the three-year thing is important, right? If this thing doesn't work out, if, if, if it's just a targeting of a certain community, we can kill us, right? And I think that is important. It's a test. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So before I let you guys go, I want to take a turn of how optimistic or pessimistic you are about Connecticut, about the United States three years later. When we start with you, Dr. Boy. I'm very optimistic because we're in a very different place than we were three years ago. We're not nearly where I hoped we would be, but we start to see, even with the Derek Chauvin case, you see police officers, police commanders testifying against rogue officers where we wouldn't have seen that 5, 10, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think the needle is moving, but again, it, it's slow. And as the senator alluded to earlier, we spend a lot of time dealing with symptoms and we ignore the problem because crime is not the problem. Crime is symptomatic of larger problems in society, and we're just not equipped or ready or willing to deal with the larger problems. And what about you, Gary Winfield? How are you feeling in Connecticut? How are we doing? And where are we going? Listen, I'll, I'll just take us back to uh, the campaign of Barack Obama where he talked about the audacity of hope. Uh, when he said that, I said that that doesn't apply to black folks because we've always had to be hopeful in, in order to survive. And I remain that way. And one of the reasons why is young folks. Uh, I've had the ability to interact with them and train some of them to do what I'm doing. And I know that they are equipped to lead us into the future. So hopeful, absolutely. And do you feel you've made progress in three years in Connecticut? 
we're, we're constantly making progress in Connecticut. I won't let us not make progress. All right. Well, that's a good note to end on, but not unrealistically. I'm not hearing unrealistic hope. <laughs> I'm saying there's a reason for you to go back to the legislature, Gary. There's a reason for you, Dr. Boyd, to take that million dollars and train cops in trauma and foreign policing and come back a year later and say how it's got a little better, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank thanks you. to Harry Jost behind the controls, as always. State Senator Gary Winfield, Dr. Lorenzo Boyd, the Stewart Professor in Criminal Justice and Community Policing. Thanks so much for sharing your insights. And now, back to work, guys. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic Experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH, New Haven's home for Community Radio.